Well, this uh, is the one in a sense where the rubber hits the road. Uh, can we read the Bible in a way that will allow us to come to understand what it's saying, what God is saying to us in its words? Does the scripture itself give us guidance on how we should read it to understand it and apply it to our lives? That is, guidance on how we should interpret it. How does what we believe about the Bible inform how we read the Bible and how we should read the Bible? Because knowing that we can understand the Bible we read and having a common mind on how we arrive at the Bible's meaning is important. Uh, God's word achieves its purpose, that is to save us through trusting Jesus and to equip us to live that life of doing good uh, that God calls his people to. God's word achieves its purpose by being understood and it's only as it's understood that it plays the role uh, which evangelicals have ascribed to it in both private and corporate Christian life. We have already in this series talked about the Bible as God's word and the authority it has as God's word written. And we've talked about the importance of having an authoritative word from God in the Christian life. Individually, that is how we start the Christian life, hearing God speaking to us in the gospel, commanding us to repent and believe in Jesus. We start by receiving that apostolic word, that gospel word, as what it really is, the word of God. And we've seen how important a clear word from God is for the continuing Christian life, for the life of discipleship, uh, the life of being followers of Jesus. Disciples practice the obedience of faith. They are those who are taught to obey all that Jesus has commanded. There is authority already in the life, in the gospel word. And so individually, our faith is in God through believing his word. Our obedience is to God through conforming our thoughts and actions to his word and being willing to die to remain faithful to that word. And we do that, and that's what God calls us to, because God alone can raise the dead and has said he will. And collectively, as congregations of God's people, it's important for the word of God to be able to exercise its authority amongst us. As God's word, as you see in the confession, as we confess, it is our final authority in all disputes. And so the preserver of our unity, the promoter of our peace, it's the authority which we hold our leaders and our institutions accountable to, and so it's the preserver of our integrity. So having scripture as our common authority is not just important uh, for our individual life of faith, but for our communal life, the preserver of our unity, the promoter of our peace, and the maintainer of our integrity. But if we cannot know what God has promised, in whom is our faith? If Jesus' commands cannot be understood, how can we obey them with confidence? If scripture can't be understood, how can we ever settle disputes, come to a common mind, correct error or abuse of power without establishing an authority 
as ultimate amongst us which is not the word of God. If we can't come to a collective understanding of the word and we, to say, preserve unity or common mind, we have to find some authority outside the word which we make more ultimate than the word, for example, church hierarchy. It's empty to affirm the Bible as the word of God if we then say it can't be understood or can't be understood with clarity. If we say that, Scripture has no practical authority in our lives. And if conflicting interpretations can be equally valid, again it has no practical authority, for we're free to choose whichever interpretation suits us. Repentance is then undermined, for we are still making the final decision in light of our own wishes. And unity is impossible unless we locate our unity in something other than the gospel. For example, in commitment to an institution or even a commitment uh, in a commitment to an idea of unity that is independent of a shared, a common faith. And I think we're actually seeing that at the moment uh, uh, in the Uniting Church's decision on same-sex marriage. Uh, they will let their congregations and ministers either choose to marry two people or choose to marry a man and a woman, actually diametrically opposite views. And they're actually looking to sustain their unity in an idea of unity, which is actually independent of a common understanding of the gospel and the authority of God's word in their lives. And of course that's no unity at all. It, it, it's elevating that anyhow. Knowing that we can understand the Bible we read and having a common mind on how we arrive at the Bible's meaning is, I hope you see, important. Now the study of how we understand or interpret a text is called hermeneutics and it's a bigger discipline than just the study of how we understand the Bible. People employ hermeneutics in English faculties, reading uh, works of literature. But for us, hermeneutics is, as Carson says, the discipline by which we examine how a thought or event in one cultural and religious context becomes understandable in another cultural and religious context. But this is not going to be a talk on hermeneutics. In what follows, the aim is very limited to outline the consequences for interpreting the Bible of our doctrine of the Bible. That is, to demonstrate how what we believe about the Bible shapes the way we should and do read the Bible. And notice that we should. So I'm actually going to argue that if we accept what Jesus says about Scripture as the Word of God, then not only does Jesus, in a sense, give us an understanding of Scripture, he gives with that a way of reading Scripture to understand it, which should be normative. That is, it should be practised by all who say that Jesus is Lord. And now, you, you may or may not, that's actually a very big claim, uh, but it's, uh, it's actually a very important claim that if Jesus is right about the Bible, then there is a way of reading the Bible to understand it that all Christians should embrace. Okay. 
But having said this is not about hermeneutics, uh, from time to time as we go through we will have to interact with what some others believe about hermeneutics and about how a text can or cannot be understood. And that's because some modern ways of reading a text claim either that there is an unbridgeable gulf between the human authors of scripture and ourselves or they claim that each of us brings such distinct questions to a text because of our own unique life experiences that while each of us can gain meaning for ourselves from the text, there's ultimately no meaning common to all of us. No way of saying this is what the text is saying to all of us and we should all believe or do what it says. Let me briefly expand on those positions. The first, the unbridgeable gulf view, is saying that the worldview of the writers of the Bible and our own worldview are so vastly different that something produced in their world, where, for example, they didn't know so about science and believed in a world populated by spirits and demons, cannot really speak to our world. We just can't access it. We can't get inside their heads, and even if we could, it would have nothing to say to us. So that's my view. Now the second, uh, this uh, notion that you know we all bring our distinct questions to the text and get our distinct answers, but there are no common answers, is an inference from what is a true observation, that each of us brings our own life to our reading of the biblical text. We aren't all the same, and so in a sense we'll all ask different questions of the text, have different concerns, and we will all get different answers, perhaps slightly. So, for example, this common, I as a privileged white male cannot expect that the answers to my questions would or should have authority for an oppressed black male, or even, say, a white woman. There has been a shift in this way of thinking about interpretation from the author's intention to focus on the reader, their experiences and questions, and to make the reader determinative, the final judge of meaning. Now this has led to distinct communities of interpretation and suggestions that universal claims to meaning are oppressive and the privileging of some groups over others the entrenching, therefore, of divisions in society and where carried to extremes, it leads to mutual incomprehension and ultimate incoherence in communication. And we're experiencing that in our society. That hermeneutic is not just practised in relation to the Bible. Now, I'm going to come back to both of those, the whole idea of authorial intention and the dominance of the reader as we go through, but they're abroad. Those ways of understanding how you relate to a text are abroad in our communities and they actually do lead, they actually fragment our society. Right. And they fragment Christian communities. I will return to both of these later in the talk, but both are destructive of Scripture's authority, which is God's authority in our lives, and they're ultimately destructive of Christian unity. Where, for example, the second view is accepted, the dominance of reader, that the ultimate authority and meaning lies with the reader, there will be an inevitable pluralism in theology. The belief that there can be many mutually contradictory but equally valid theologies. And so no universal beliefs and commands can be drawn from Scripture. 
no expectations of you that you do not place on yourself. That's actually, really, it's the triumph of Adam and Eve's sin. Adam and Eve are still being like God, claiming to rule in his place because they then have become, through their experience, the arbiter of what God can and cannot say uh, to them. Now, knowing that we can understand the Bible we read, as I've said, and having a common mind on how we arrive at the Bible's meaning is therefore very important. So what does our belief about the Bible tell us about how we should read the Bible? And again, notice in answering this, we're saying that there is a way of reading the Bible that all Christians should practice and that will yield conclusions that have authority for all Christians. Why do I say that? It flows from believing that there is a Christian doctrine of the Bible. If you confess Jesus as Son of God and Lord, and that is what it is to be a Christian, then you must believe what he believed about Scripture. As we saw in our first talk, it is clear from the only evidence we have, the Gospels, that the Lord Jesus believed that Scripture, the written word, was God's word. All believers should then read the Bible as God's word. That is their starting place and a good starting place because they're actually then approaching Scripture on its own terms, in harmony with what it says about itself. And it's actually an important starting place for understanding anything, to address it in a sense, to come to it in its own terms. You mightn't finish there, but actually that's where you always have to start. How something understands itself is the starting place for understanding. And as God's word written, it is the final authority on all things on which it teaches. And that includes what it teaches about reading itself. That's right, the Bible itself, is the, if you believe it to be God's word, is the final authority on how it should be read because there's no authority higher or more ultimate than scripture itself. And so what it says about how it's to be read is something believers in Jesus must conform to in their reading of the scripture. Now, a good place to start, in a sense, uh, with what we believe about the Bible and therefore a good guide to how we should interpret the Bible is scripture's understanding of itself. Say, summarised in verse 21, uh, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And this is, uh, in a sense, uh, gives you a, a summary framework for how you to interpret the scriptures. Men spoke real human words, but they spoke from God. Those human words are actually God's words, and that's what we're going to explore. So the Bible's a book that's genuinely human and genuinely God's. It comes to us in human words, but those words are the words God willed them to write without in any way compromising their genuine humanity. Words the Spirit brought them to as the Spirit brought them to the Spirit's destination. Now what does that mean for how we read it? Well, four principles for interpreting Scripture that derive from our doctrine of Scripture. And you should always feel free to interrupt. But firstly, I think it means we read scriptures literally. That is, and I'm about to explain this word, grammatico-historically, 
with attention to the language and the context. For it says, men spoke from God. And there's a long quote from Packer there, but it's actually a really good quote. The doctrine of inspiration tells us that God has put his words into the mouths and caused them to be written in the writings of persons whose individuality as people of their time was in no way lessened by the fact of their being thus overruled and who spoke and wrote to be understood by their contemporaries. Since God has affected an identity between their words and his, the way for us to get into his mind, if we may thus phrase it, is via theirs. For their thought and speech about God constitutes God's own self-testimony. Though God may have more to say to us from each text than its human writer had in mind, God's meaning is never less than his. What the human author meant, God meant. And God's further meaning is revealed when the text is exegeted in its canonical context in relation to all that went before and came after is simply extension, development and application of what the writer was consciously expressing. So the first task is always to get into the writer's mind by grammatico-historical exegesis of the most thoroughgoing and disciplined kind, including all the tools provided by linguistic, historical, logical and semantic analysis. Now, the reformer's sense of literal was according to the letter, uh, the sense of the letter, the sense the first writers intended, which can easily encompass things like metaphor and image, imagery, even allegory, if this is what the writer intended. And when they were insisting on the literal sense, they were interacting uh, with medieval exegesis. So this is a historical aside. If you don't like historical aside, you can go, that's right. But uh, you can have a little nap, uh, a micro nap. Uh, medieval exegesis spoke of four senses, and you can still read about this because they're still in the Catholic Catechism, questions 115 to 119, which outlines it all because it's still the sense. But once Trent endorsed it, that's it. So, right, but, but they had four senses. They had the literal, which was the original sense, the allegorical, which was how you discovered Christian doctrine in the passage, uh, the, what they called the anagogical, something that led you on, leading upwards, which was a picture of the future life, and the moral, how to behave. Now, these latter three, allegorical, anagogical and moral, gave what they called the spiritual sense. Right? And spiritual is always more superior to the literal, even though, as Aquinas said, all other senses of scripture are based on the literal. But it's actually these other three senses that in medieval theology were the most significant and the literal sense was the least significant for Christian life and doctrine. Uh, a medieval couplet contained in the Catechism says, the letter speaks to deed, allegory to faith, the moral how to act, and anagogy is our destiny. I guess it rhymed more in Latin, but anyhow, there you go. Right, uh, but it's these last three senses that they really emphasised on, drew doctrine and behaviour from. But the reformers said, no, literal must take precedence. It's what you have to look for and it's the most important. It's more important than all figurative interpretation, 
But there may still be room for figurative interpretation, but it's the literal is the most important. Now, literal does not and never has uh, meant literalistic. So, for example, 2 Chronicles 16.9 says, The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless towards him. Now, that is a bizarre mixture of uh, imagery, isn't it? So you've got eyes running and then propping somebody up, right? Uh, now, when the seer Hanani uh, is rebuking King Asa for his alliance with the king of Aram against Israel, uh, you are actually not expected to think that the Lord has eyes firstly, or those eyes run, because let's face it, eyes would roll probably anyhow, right? In fact, a literal sense requires you to think that the author's using an image to convey sense, you know, that the Lord knows those who are his and knows their circumstances and so is well able to strengthen them and intervene on their behalf, right? But literal has never meant literalistic. So how do we get the literal meaning? Well, we seek the original meaning, the meaning the author was conveying to his first hearers. So let's think about original meaning. The meaning the author intended to convey to the original hearers is the original meaning. In the first instance, it was what he's writing was intended for that original audience. It was relevant to them, and we need to understand how the author communicated his message to them so that they, that first audience, would understand it. Now, you'll note the emphasis is on the meaning the author intended to convey, and that's because often, as we see in Scripture, the original audience may well have misunderstood or refused to believe or accept the message because of their sin. But as hinted in the introduction, this focus on the meaning the author intended, authorial intention, is controversial. Many today claim that meaning resides in the reader or in an interaction between the text and the reader with the author and his intention having nothing to do with it, or the interaction between the text and a community of readers who come to their text with their own questions, background and issues. But in communication, the author's intention is what he or she writes, and that is uppermost. And we actually know that in a conversation. If we're in a conversation with another, we are interested in and work at trying to understand what they're saying. That's why we have conversations, isn't it? Because we're kind of understanding what each is saying. In communication, what the person means to say is uppermost. And we actually work at trying to understand it. Now, Davis and Hay, Duval and Hayes, and uh, uh, this is a good book that Bell recommended to me, and I'm halfway through it, and it's actually really helpful. Anyhow, uh, and they have two good illustrations about the priority of the author's intention in communication. So they say, first of all, think about a stop sign. We've all seen stop signs, haven't we? That's a form of communication. Now, the intent of the author of the stop sign is pretty plain. That's why it's up there in a big red sign that says stop. And they write, if you choose, you can follow a reader response approach and interpret the text, stop, to mean slow down just a bit, look for cars, and then speed through the intersection. 
The police, however, believe strongly in authorial intention for the determination of meaning, and they, so they will respond to your interpretation with a traffic ticket and a fine, because they were trying to communicate something with that sign, and when it comes to communication, the author's intent is utmost. A second example, which touches Australians. You get your power bill, and it says, and because I'm an optimist, $220, but it's not going to say that. I'm sorry about that but I found that easier to divide. Okay, let's say you get your power bill and if you choose to follow a reader-response approach and interpret the bill as an, uh, you know, uh, you, you can follow that and then interpret the bill as an indication that you owe them $22 because of all sorts of features of your own particular circumstances. You know, you, 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 your, your, your need, the fact that you don't think you use it as much as the neighbour next door, you, you know, who knows what's driving you, your own particular questions. But you choose to interpret it, read a response as $22. But of course that means you'll probably experience a dark and cold winter after the power's been cut off because authorial intent is uppermost in determining the meaning of the communication. And they intended $220. In communication, ordinary communication, whether it's from conversation to the letters we get, authorial intent is uppermost. It is primary in understanding the communication. And that's true for believers. We actually think the scriptures are not just a textbook or a dead record of ancient history. We think God is speaking to us that the scriptures are first and above all a communication from God to his people. Therefore, as Duval and Hayes write, when we come to the scripture, we do not create meaning. Rather, we seek to discover the meaning that's been placed there by the author. For everyone who thinks that God speaks, and that's the Christian starting point, that God is actually communicating with us in the gospel and in his word, authorial intent, what he means to communicate through these human words he's caused to be written is uppermost in determining meaning. And the way to determine that meaning, to discover authorial intent, is to discover the meaning the author intended to convey to the original audience. And that means we have to apply ourselves to the original languages the historical context, the literary form, and the context in the book and the whole Bible. Uh, original languages have to have precedence uh, in interpretation over any uh, translation. Uh, we have good translations, but we did see last week a little of the reason uh, why original languages must have... Uh, Precedence, because we saw that no two languages are ever exactly like. There's not complete equivalence between two languages, whether it's in the meaning of words, whether it's in grammar, whether it's even in features of their discourse. So uh, we actually have to give attention to the semantics, the the, the meaning of words, and the and and the range uh, of uh, the range of senses of a word. In the original language, uh, we have to give attention, say, to grammar, to the way they understood verbs. We even have to 
give attention to what you might call the longer features of a passage, the longer features of a discourse. And so in Hebrew, what they call... I realise this is an illustration that for most of you will go nowhere. But in Hebrew, the wow consecutive is actually a discourse marker and it's almost impossible to reproduce in an English translation. So, so uh, you just need to pay attention. So let me give you some of these. We've actually been coming across a little bit of this in Hebrews, uh, in Hebrews 11. And one example from the ESV of, of just what you might say semantic infelicity. Uh, and, and you're allowed to use that word again. That's, anyhow, you, everybody should look for an opportunity to say, well, that was semantically infelicitous. <laughs> Sorry, I should, I should exercise my self-control. Uh, but uh, Hebrews 11, uh, 35. Now, in the, uh, the ESV it says, women received back their dead by resurrection some were tortured, refusing to accept relief, so they might rise again to a better life. That's kind of anemic, okay? Because it actually says, it uses the word for resurrection twice. Women received from resurrection out of anastasis. They received their dead from resurrection. And it, it actually goes on to say, you know, some endured torture in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. Now, in a sense, the sense is there in the ESV, but the balance and emphasis, the contrast, is so much more powerful, right? They received by resurrection one resurrection, but there's actually a better resurrection. And it immediately prompts you to ask, actually, what's better about this resurrection? Right? And it leads you to contrast one life with the life to come. Simple one. Hebrews 2, the NIV. Again, you kind of get the sense, but it's infelicitous because it's moved. Uh, uh, did I get the NIV there? Yes, because it's, it's pluralised. It's pluralised singulars. So the, the movement of fulfilment in one man, Jesus is actually clunky. Okay, it's actually more natural if you travel through the psalm with its consistent use of the singular to the singular man, Jesus. Now that may or may not excite you, but it just shows that actually the original language always has precedent. Or another example would be Romans three twenty-five, the NIV. It has sacrifice of atonement, and that kind of works. Uh, but the Greek actually has a very particular word, hilasterion, which is uh, a word that has a sense of propitiation, some elements of what they call expiation, covering over sin, but primarily a sense of propitiation, averting wrath. And in Romans, you know that wrath is the issue. Romans 2.4, you're storing up wrath for the day of wrath. Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. And then you get this word. So, illustrations that the original language has to have precedence over any interpretation. And you, you need people, if you're going to maintain the authority of Scripture amongst us as a unifying force, who actually can operate in the original languages. 
Then, to get to the original meaning, you need knowledge of things that original hearers would understand and take for granted, or that the author consciously directs us to. Say, say you'll need some knowledge of historical events. Uh, again, you might uh, take this for granted, but on the other hand, it's, it's actually an encouragement to work. So, uh, when Isaiah opens by saying, the vision of Isaiah the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, in the days of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, that's actually an invitation. It's an invitation to go to the book of Kings and actually find out what is happening there, get some historical context. And there are just stuff you need to know. I mean, whether you're looking at Jonah, Nahum or Isaiah, you really ought to know who the Assyrians were <laughs> and what kind of people they were and, and where they materialised from. Or in your New Testament, who were the Samaritans? Why was there hostility between them and the Jews? And if there was hostility, why did Jesus travel through Samaria? You actually need to know something about the geography of the of, uh, of Canaan. And, and now most Bibles will have a little map at the back of Jesus, uh, of uh, Palestine in the time of Jesus, and you can kind of start to work it out. But you do need to do They would have just taken it for granted. Or how many Herods were there? That's, a, that's an interest. How many Herods were there? Who said? Four. Yes, four. You should all know that. Because the last one's actually not called Herod. He's just called King Agrippa. But that's right, there's Herod the Great in, in, in Luke 1. There's uh, Herod the Tetrarch, right, who Jesus comes to. Then there is Herod Agrippa I, who gets eaten by worms. Uh, it's very memorable after he chopped James's head off. And then there's King Agrippa, to whom Paul makes a defence of the gospel. Now, it just helps, otherwise you might get confused. You know, you might start reading in Luke 1 and you think, Jesus is born in the days of Herod, and you actually think, well, getting eaten by worms when you're about 110 is probably not such a bad option when you get to Acts 12 if you didn't work out that there were three. Anyhow, good. Uh, okay. Uh, other things. What's the nature of the government you're called to submit to in Romans 13? Might save you from thinking that Christians can only live in a democracy. You just have to remember it was idolatrous, made totalitarian claims, and was often arbitrary and unjust. That's something to think about when you think about your submission to government. It's also, what's the difference between that government and the government you meet in Revelation 12 and 13. Worth thinking about. Okay, uh, all sorts of things. Um, uh, you need to know aspects of their culture. So to understand 1 Corinthians, it's actually helpful to know something about honour and shame culture uh, and to know something about their social relationships, their patronage relationships. In fact, Paul's refusal to accept sponsorship and the contention that created, seen in 1 Corinthians 9 and 2 Corinthians 10 to 13, is actually only understandable, really, against their patronage relationships. Yeah, you know, uh, benefactor, client, patron, client. Uh, it's actually helpful. Uh, 
background worldviews. Just what did the Ephesians believe about magic and the world of spirits? Remember, we got that spiritual put on the armour of God or in Acts you've got them burning magic books. How does what they understood about magic and the world of spirits actually affect our understanding of what Paul says, particularly what Paul says about grace? It's because it's actually revolutionary because magic is transactional. You know, you get what you put in. Uh, so, and, right, so all of these things were actually getting to work to understand what in many ways they took for granted is helpful, geographical settings uh, and what went with the knowledge of geography, you know, an understanding of when to travel and when not to, the dangers of sea travel in winter, Acts 27 or 2 Timothy uh, 4.21 or Jesus' gospel, Jesus travels in the gospels, what dictated them? And uh, where'd he go? Anyhow, uh, some people are actually particularly good at that historical and cultural background. That's why F.F. F. Bruce is enduring in his contribution. Or Paul Barnett, they actually come from a particular um, a kind of school of New Testament scholarship which really engages uh, with that historical cultural background in detail. So, uh, and of course, Engaging with their, in a sense, worldview also means that we should know that they received prophecy as prophecy. That is, they actually understood it as talking about the future. When they heard a prophet, they didn't think it all had to make immediate, well, it had to make, in a sense, sense in terms of the words, but it didn't have to come to immediate fulfilment in their own circumstances. Part of their culture was to, and this is true of Greek culture as well, was to understand prophecy as prophecy, actually speaking about the future, which is something many modern Old Testament critics can't get their head around. Okay, it, uh, it misleads them. So, you know, original meaning it means we have to pay attention to language and culture and history. It also means we have to pay attention to literary form or what's called genre. There are different types of literature, aren't there? I mean. We often develop, if you're a native speaker, you often develop a certain sensitivity to style. So we read newspapers differently to scientific journals, hopefully. Uh, we actually have different expectations of them about, in a sense, what they'll communicate to us and how exact and perhaps precise they are in their statement of the facts. Uh, so, so now native speakers uh, were sen are sensitive to genre and there are all kinds of different kinds of literature in the Bible, aren't there? Poetry, law, prose, narrative, prophecy, proverbs, Old Testament, even allegory, New Testament, gospels, epistles, parables, uh, apocalyptic. Now, uh, and again, Duval and Hayes, very good on this, people speak of genres by analogy with sport, right? For a particular sport, there are certain rules you have to play by, aren't there? Right? And all the participants know them, or the game comes to a grinding halt. So if you're playing soccer, you don't pick the ball up and fend off the opposition as you race towards the other end, do you? That would bring the game to a halt. But equally so, if you're playing rugby, if not the opposition, your teammates would become tremendously frustrated with you if you never picked up the ball. Games have certain rules, and to participate in them, in a sense, there's an understanding, a commitment to those rules. With particular literary forms, there are conventions of communication known to both author and reader, and communication happens within those conventions. 
And so you need to be sensitive of the kind of literature that there is and the conventions of understanding that attach to it. As Van Hooser says, literary genre acts as a kind of covenant of communication, a fixed agreement between author and reader about how to communicate. And in a sense, we kind of know that pretty naturally. Consider Proverbs 16. Grey hair is a crown of splendour. Yes, it is attained in the way of righteousness. Now, do you think you would prove that untrue if you found a grey-haired person who was perhaps a little wicked? Right? Or does you think that's suggesting that those who dye their hair are definitely not in the field of righteousness, right? Now, that's a proverb. We know it's actually a generalisation. And more, it's a generalisation in their cultural context, where actually not everybody lived to an old age. And in the worldview of proverbs, fools and the wicked die young. So, so there's a certain convention in our understanding of it. Or do you think Deuteronomy... You read Deuteronomy 14 differently, don't you? Because it's in the law. You would read it completely differently if it was in a recipe book. It's true, isn't it? There's a certain convention. You, do, you don't think when you read Do Not Cook a Young Goat in Its Mother's Milk in Deuteronomy 14, you don't think, well, out of the range of ways I have of of cooking young goats, even though this might be flavoursome, apparently there's some reason I shouldn't do it, right? In terms of cooking, actually you're thinking, hopefully you're thinking, practices of the Canaanites, part of their idolatrous religious practice. And God's saying don't participate in it. But you get that through John here. It comes in the law. It's not in a recipe book. How about this? Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Now, when you read that, you're not actually being prompted to ask, what was his name, how much did he pay, and where did he get it? Right? Maybe if you're reading a mining journal, you might think that. But actually, that's, that's not the sense. You know this is a parable, and it's got a particular point. Most, if we read uh, scripture, in a sense we start to get a sense of genre, but we actually need to be disciplined uh, about that because if you read poetry as if it's prose, you will be, say, in trouble. And if you read Proverbs as if it's prophecy, well, that also might make life a little difficult for you too. Uh, and Having said that, of course, we have to remember that things can be both true and symbolic. In fact, narratives, because they are true, can have a rich and universal meaning because God is known in his dealings with particular people. So, according to genre, and then according to context. So that's when, where, to whom, by whom, why, how, under what conditions. This implies attention to actually the reading of the passage and the reading of the passage in terms of what comes before and what comes after in the book. And this is why if your parents, one of the best things you can do for your kids is to teach them to be a good reader because it actually equips them to read the Bible. We actually need to cultivate 
good habits of reading because people who are good readers actually are asking those questions almost all the time naturally. What comes before? What comes after? When? Where? To whom? By whom? Why? How? Under what conditions? Now, uh, 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 commitment to the literal sense, to a grammatico-historical reading of the text is just being attentive to the fact that what we have is real revelation, the living God making himself known to particular people at a particular time and place and making himself known through particular people in a particular time and place. It's just a consequence of the fact that it is a human book with real human authors. Men spoke from God and we access, in a sense, God's meaning through the meaning that these authors intended to convey to their original hearers. So that's the first principle. The second principle is what we call the analogy of Scripture. That is, that Scripture has to be interpreted by Scripture, which is called the principle of harmonisation. That's the other part. Men spoke from God. God is the ultimate author of all Scripture and so in a sense the context for any one passage of Scripture is ultimately the whole of Scripture. As God is one, only one God, as he speaks the truth, and as he is almighty, there will actually be a fundamental unity and consistency across the Scriptures because God won't contradict himself, God never gets confused, he doesn't have lapses in concentration. He knows the end from the beginning. He can actually achieve the purpose he intends in revealing himself. So because God is the ultimate author and he knows the end from the beginning, the meaning of the whole may well at times exceed the meaning known to the human author of each part. Uh, you'll remember the Apostle Peter, speaking of salvation in Jesus, uh, said uh, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you, in the things that have been now announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which into which angels long to look. So he's saying the prophets, in a sense, knew that there was more, in a sense, to, to what they were saying than they could actually grasp at the time. They were serving us. Uh, and it's only when Jesus comes that the full meaning of what they've said becomes true. And of course it becomes clear. And some books self-consciously relate to the whole of Scripture. Uh, and the book of Revelation uh, is, is the characteristic, is the prime example of that. Now, saying uh, the analogy of Scripture doesn't deny, rather it embraces the diversity of Scripture. And so, for example, Ecclesiastes is very different from Proverbs. 
not just in its words, but almost in its worldview, in the way it approaches reality. Lamentations is vastly different from Psalm 103. Jonah from Nahum. Right? In Jonah, God says a word of repentance. In Nahum, God says a word that the Assyrians are going to get it in the neck. They're really very, very different books. James from Galatians, John from Matthew. Uh, differences in style and emphasis, differences on issues and perspectives are actually present in Scripture. But Packer has this analogy for recognising diversity and, and, and that is that the unity of Scripture is that of a symphony and the impact is felt as each instrument plays its distinctive part and as you see them as playing together. So you might be listening to the flute line and it might be very different from the violin line. But actually the impact is when you hear them playing together under the control of the one conductor. So we recognise diversity. And a clear statement on uh, the analogy of Scripture's Westminster Confession of Faith 9, the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture, is the scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any scripture, which is not manifold but one, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. Now, the appeal to the analogy of faith uh, does require some uh, judgment because there are, there are two errors that you can make in this. And the first error is overinflation by the neglect of uh, development in the biblical story. You know, reading into an early passage everything that uh, subsequently might have developed from it. You know, uh, you can see this sometimes with Genesis where some people find in Abel's sacrifice in chapter 4 a complete sacrificial theology that ends up with Jesus. And you think, wow, I never saw that. Didn't say anything, right, and you can just you can get everything and then try and stuff it back in, into there. Little the other is a reductionism that says you can only read a text in the light of what comes before it. When actually we know God is moving this story forward, so uh, we're going to come back to how the analogy of Scripture helps us read Scripture uh, after a break. <laughs> 